that don't know it, that song is based on Ezekiel chapter 47. And if you'd ever <coughs> take the time to look at Ezekiel chapter 47, it talks about the waters that come out of the throne of God during the millennium. And uh, that song is a great spiritual application to all that, and it's a great song. Uh, <coughs> I want to also tell you today that uh, before you leave afterwards today, uh, today is uh, uh, Chow Wong's last day. He goes back to China this week. And uh, it's been a real blessing to hear to have him here. And we had a going away party for him last night that had a great turnout. And, and uh, interesting thing about all of that, <coughs> I, I met a, another Chinese young man last night. In fact, some of you guys were playing ball with him who uh, is a saved man. And he uh, goes to a Southern Baptist church here in town someplace. And uh, he speaks English very well. And he, was, he translates for, for uh, Chow Wong. And I had a, he come over and asked me about the difference between Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist and all that. He's a sharp kid. And uh, so there may be an opportunity there. I know some of them are invited into church, and you young people would, would, be, uh, would, be, all, would be great for him. So you never know. God closes one door, he opens up another one through that same door. So we're excited about that. If you have your Bibles, we're in Proverbs chapter 1. And uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at our second and our third admonition uh, as us as the sons. You remember that I told you in the first seven chapters of the book of Proverbs, there's 15 times that he mentions uh, us as sons and uh, gives us instructions and tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And last week, we talked about uh, the aspect of not uh, dealing about the enticement of sinners. And I, I think it's instructive that the Bible's very exact in itself. You know, we talk about the world and staying away from the world, and, and that's all true. But the Bible's much more exact than that. When it talks about the enticement that we go through in life, he, he didn't talk about the enticement of the world. And yet I know he talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil, but he's more exact than that. He, because uh, it's, it's, it's like somebody said one time, you know, there's nothing wrong with the world, it's just the people in it. And, and, and that is so true. And he says here, he says, my son, in verse 10, uh, if sinners entice thee. And it's more than the world. It's the people that is in the world. And you know as well as I do that there are people in this world that will hurt you. There will people in this world that, uh, uh, that you just need to stay away from. And we see this reoccurring over and over again in the book of Proverbs, how important it is. And verse 10, uh, in its entirety, said, my son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. And we took the time and we, we laid out about enticement. We talked about what that means and, and how we should stay away from it. Then we looked at verse 15 where he also said, My son, walk not thou in the way with them, refrain thy foot from their path. And we really focused on two great principles last week of staying away from the people in this world that will hurt you. And today, you know, I want to I look at the next set of principles here. We have been coming through it systematically by the paragraph marks, and we talked about how important those are in the Bible. Uh, and I want to continue with, uh, with chapter uh, uh, 1 as we come down through here. And basically, you know, it's the same concept, it's just a different theme now. So let's read chapter 1, verses 20 through 23 uh, within the paragraph structure here, and we'll, we'll make some comments on it. He says, Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates in the city she uttereth her word, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? 
and the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Now, Father, help us today to grasp all that you have for us here. We love you. We thank you for the folks that have came today. We thank you for our church and for uh, the word of God that you provided for us that we know leads and guides us into all truth. And we come today, Father, as, as needy people. We come needing, uh, Lord, what you have for us today. That's why these folks have showed up. And Lord, I, I on my own as a human man, I, I don't have anything that I can give them. Only as you use me as a vessel, as unworthy as I am, to be able to flow uh, through me to give them the message that you have for them. And we will be careful today, as we always are, Lord, to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this is, it's, it's loaded here. and it, it's, it's a good thing that we're taking these in small degrees between the paragraph marks because you're going to see today, it doesn't look like much. This section is absolutely loaded, as every section is uh, in the book of Proverbs. But verse 20 says, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice uh, in the streets. And as I said, there's a number of things here for us to see. At number one, I want to I talk to you uh, and, and help you understand that why that a wisdom is used in a female gender. I, I get asked a question all the time when somebody sees it in Proverbs, why women, uh, wisdom is likened to a woman. And uh, you know in life there's, there's a number of things that uh, uh, are, are likened to women. Uh, for a long time, hurricanes were on, and tornadoes were always given women's name. But then, uh, you know, when, when we got to the point, now men are named that too. Uh, there was a time when, only, when ships were named after women. Uh, but in the Bible, uh, wisdom in the book of Proverbs is found as a female gender. And I'm asked that question all the time, many, many times. And I, I want you to show, show you this, but I want you to see how it is uh, in the three applications of Scripture that we talk about. I, I think it's very important that you do that. Now, we already know from our intro and from where we were and what we've come through that the book of Proverbs is wrapped around two men, a wise man and a foolish man. We know that now. And uh, yet, uh, you also, along with that, you'll find that there's two women in the book of Proverbs. One of them is going to be a virtuous woman. The other one is going to be a whorish woman. And uh, so the Bible, book of Proverbs, is built around that, as is the whole Bible. Now, let's talk about it for a moment. Now, in a doctrinal sense, prophetically, what it's dealing with, the virtuous woman will uh, always stand for the nation of Israel. When you'd go back to uh, the book of Hosea would be a good book, uh, the book of Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, uh, and Isaiah chapter 54, and, and many other places. Those are three of the main ones. You're going to find that in the Old Testament, Israel is portrayed as God's wife. You've heard me talk about it many, many times, and people get confused about that, but it's in a, it's in a symbolic sense. God looked at her like a husband should look at his wife. God looked at the nation of Israel, took him under his, his bosom just like uh, a man would take his wife. And he, he cared for her. He took care of her. He gave her all the things that she needed. So the analogy in the Old Testament, and there's many analogies with Israel, but one of the main ones is Israel as God's wife. And it's, it's throughout the Old Testament, and it's a symbolism of God taking care of her, and yet it's a good role model for what, you know, a husband should do uh, for his wife. Uh, now, doctrinally, the whorish woman will be, always be false religion. 
When we get to Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7, which are the two main chapters on uh, this whorish woman, we'll spend a lot of time with that. But you'll find that in the Bible, uh, this whorish woman uh, is called Babylon mystery religion, uh, the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth in, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. Uh, two great concepts about that title uh, is the fact that uh, it says uh, Babylon, a mystery Babylon. She's a mystery. Uh, one of the, uh, I think it was Aaron the other night asked a question in Bible study about the seven judgments, and I showed you that systematic theology of sevens coming through the Bible. Well, there's seven mysteries in the Bible. And uh, uh, Paul told the church at Corinth that they were to be stewards of those mysteries over there uh, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and there's seven mysteries in, in the Bible. And one of those mysteries is this mystery here. And the mystery is, how does this woman, uh, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth, how does she impact everything in our world today? Not only is she a mystery, but the Bible says that she's the mother of harlots. And we know that she represents false religion. So basically, without getting into it today, uh, but it would be a great Thursday night Bible study question, basically what you have here is that this Babylon mystery religion uh, is the one where all false religions start and come from. And uh, that's why it's one of the greatest studies in the Bible. And the Proverbs uh, takes the time to detail her out so, uh, you know, that we won't miss it. So that's how it works doctrinally. Now, historically, uh, she would be any whorish woman. And in particular to our story, you remember that Solomon had a thousand wives. You know, uh, 400 wives, 600 concubines, or 600 wives, 400 concubines. I can't remember which one, but he had a thousand. And, and he goes through in his lifetime these thousand women trying to find one that has virtue with her, a virtuous woman. And historically, the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, this was Solomon's downfall. Bible says that Solomon loved many strange women. And, uh, and what the Bible goes on in that passage and tells you is that when he brought these women from all over the world, obviously probably the most beautiful women uh, that, the, that the, was in the world, if he'd have lived in this time, he could have got all of them right here. So, I'm just, I almost said I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. But the Bible says that these women, as beautiful as they were, they brought all their strange gods with them. He gets them from the Zidonians. He gets them from the Phoenicians. He gets them from everywhere God told him he shouldn't get them. And he brings these women in. They bring their station wagons with all their gods in with it and their religion. And in time, it infests everything in Israel. In fact, when you get a little bit farther down, it infects Solomon to the point that when you get a little bit farther down, you know what Solomon's doing? I mean, it talks about, you know, Rehoboam and, and basically one of his boys, but he had a lot of kids from these women. And his Osley shows that he got to a point in his life where he's taking those babies and actually offering them up as human sacrifices to, to Molech, that, these gods that they were bringing in. And so we see that uh, in his life, we see that he goes through a process of finding one virtuous woman out of a thousand. And uh, again, you'll find that this woman is typified in the Bible by, by Jezebel. Uh, Ahab, the king of Israel, a little bit, I think it's about 250 years later, uh, Ahab comes on the scene. He's got a wife at Jezebel. Ahab's the king. 
Jezebel is the religious prophetess. She is the greatest type of the, of the harlot in Revelation chapter 17 and the, the woman that it talks about in Proverbs. And she destroys Israel. In fact, she finishes it off by that time, and then they go into the captivity. So Solomon is looking uh, all through this, and from Solomon and what he does here, Baal worship, all, runs rampant in the nation of Israel and really is the most single reason why they go into the captivity. Took them completely away from God. But Solomon looks through all of his women and he finds one that has virtue. Many people say it's the Queen of Sheba. Good, good chance in the Bible that that's who it was, though the Bible doesn't tell you for sure. But he finds one, one out of a thousand. And then, just so you can see how your Bible goes together, when he finds this virtuous woman, he writes a, a book to her, really a song to her. And we know it as the Song of Solomon, see? He wrote that to the virtuous woman that he found. Proverbs 31, when you would read that uh, historically, is about that woman and all the great characteristics that she has. So you see how it all begins to kind of uh, uh, pull together. Now, I've always thought it was interesting that they had a thousand women, but they only found one in virtue. Hold that. I'll talk about that in a second. Now, inspirationally, this virtuous woman will be a picture of you and, for, and me in a practical sense. It, historically, it'll be the women back there in that time, literally, doctrinally, it's prophetically, it's Israel, but in a spiritual application, this virtuous woman is you and I. And when you and I got saved, we got the wisdom of God in the Word of God. And the wisdom of God in the Word of God becomes one with you when you get saved. So this virtuous woman in a spiritual application will be you and me who have become saved, who have been, uh, have been espoused to Christ as the bride of Christ, a female again. And as, as, as Israel is God's wife, the church is Christ's bride. There's a marriage supper. There's the marriage of the Lamb. We've talked about it many, many times. And it's the wisdom of God personified in you and I as the body of Christ, as, as Christ's bride, a woman. And so, hence, wisdom is called uh, a woman, uh, or called a she. I, I told you a minute ago that when Solomon looked through his uh, thousand wives to find one of virtue, he only found one. I, I think, not that I think, I, and I know that everything in the Bible has a significance. And I'm telling you right now, that, that's, a great, that's a great analogy because just as Solomon had to go through a thousand women to find one with virtue, I promise you today, Christ has to go through a thousand people. I know, uh, I tell you all the time that uh, how many people claim to be saved and come to church but never do anything for God. And I, I tell you, that number is there for a reason. I'd say today that out of a thousand Christians that you take, probably one of them is going to do what really needs to be done. And, and that's what's the problem with Christianity today. Now, we are, we are, so you see it now. Historically, you know, it's the one that he finds and he writes Song of Solomon to. Doctrinally, it's Israel as God's wife uh, and inspirationally as the church as Christ's bride. Now, once we get saved and we become the bride of Christ, a female, then that wisdom is personified in us. And we are admonished to take the wisdom. Uh, a wise man will learn these things, and a wise man, when he understands what I'm saying, he'll see wisdom as a female. He'll see it as a, a female that, that uh, God gives him and to get God's wisdom, and then he'll embrace her. He'll embrace her like Solomon embraced 
the virtuous woman that he found. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll tempt to the point where he, he'll exalt her. He'll love her. He'll forsake everything else in the world for her, the wisdom of God. And it winds up bringing in your life and my life someone who loves truth and loves God's wisdom and, and loves God's instructions. So you can see how that works. Uh, you forsake everything else. The Bible says in Luke chapter 11, verse 49, Colossians 2, 3, and 1 Corinthians 1, 3, that Christ himself is the wisdom of God. So when you, when you get saved, he imparts that wisdom to you as the bride of Christ, the weaker vessel. But there's coming a day when the rapture takes place that the two will be joined, your glorified body and your soul, and then you'll be the personification of God's wisdom. And that's how it works. It's an incredible study. The next thing I want you to see, and this follows in verse 20 and 21, are five places that wisdom need to be declared. I think this is very important. I'm telling you, this passage is loaded. And this won't necessarily be one of them hellfire rant and raving when preach messages today, but uh, there's a lot of solid good stuff in here. Now, the rant and raving, if you're disappointed about that, just come back next week because unfortunately, or fortunately, I want to look at it, next week we get into the next section is the laughter of God. So come with your asbestos, asbestos on this next week and because uh, that's where we're going to go. But here's what he says. Five things. Now, these five, these five aspects will be five aspects to our ministry. Five places that you and I as a church in this church should minister to. And yet at the same time, it's where your life should be. And what he says down here, he says, he says, wisdom crieth without. Now here's five places that once you get the wisdom of God, you need to cry out without wisdom. It's incredible. Now I changed the order a little bit here just so I could build on it, and, uh, but, uh, uh, but you'll see it as we go through here. Uh, the first thing he says here, he says, wisdom crieth without. Now, I want, that's, that's dealing with being a witness for God. You see, you start ministry and putting out the Word of God by taking what God gave you inwardly first, and then in time, taking what God gave you inwardly and then giving it outwardly to others. That is the biggest fundamental flaw in most Christians' lives. You know, we all go through storms in life. We all do. There will be nobody that will never go through a storm in life. But the key is not going, not, not going through the storm in life. The key is not letting that storm get in your life. You see? And the reason why most people get so troubled with everything in their life is because they're not putting anything out. You know, if you've, got, if you've got a tank full of water and you've got one outlet and you're pouring that water out at 500 gallons a second, you realize that no water can get in because of everything is pressure is going out. You realize if nothing is going out and you open that valve, it'll keep filling it up and feed. That's what your life is like. When you take what God has given you inside and give it out to others, there's no way that things out there, the storms of life, can get into your life. You will go through them in life. The problem is not going through them. It's problem when you let those things get in your life. They'll destroy everything. You'll worry about it. You'll fret over it. You'll, you'll have to deal with all of those things. But when you're putting out what God has given you on the inside, you don't care nearly about because things can't get to you. Things can't get into your life. And so the first thing he says is wisdom crieth without. 
The Bible says in verse 21, she uttereth her words. And this is what, very frankly, many of you do. And it's a testimony to our church, and uh, I see it all the time. I, I talked to you last week, I think it was last week, about the fact that we, don't ha- we didn't have a sign for, for months, uh, for years, because I wanted you to be the signs. And I, I, even the sign we have now is pretty obscure. I mean, if you don't really look for it, you can never see it. We don't have a big marquee. We don't have a flashing sign out there. And I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that. But I am telling you this, the greatest sign you'll have is not one you hang on the door. The greatest sign you'll have will be the people in your church that will go out and cry out the wisdom on the inside and give it out to others. That's what you need to do. That's exactly what he's talking about here. It's absolutely important that you see that. See, God made a difference in your life if you got saved. God made a difference in your life internally. Now, you have to try to make a difference in other people's lives by taking what God gave you internally and taking it to them without. And that's just, that's just the way that it works. Now, the second thing I want you to see is as wisdom cried without uh, in the opening of the gate. And I moved these around a little bit but uh, uh, for purpose of being able to illustrate this. But he says the opening of the gate. Now, in the Bible, the gate of the city was the hotbed of activity. It's where all the events took place, all the proclamations, all the decrees, all the announcements of what was going to happen took place there. The elders sat at that gate. They watched who came in and they watched who went out. The gate was the entrance to the city that you could, only way you could get in because the city had walls around it. And uh, it, it represents for us uh, the opening uh, that was the center of all the activity that went on in that city. Now for us, that'll be a picture of our church. Just as the gate was the center of everything back there, every event, this church will be the main event in your life. We saw when we came through church history, I talked about two churches. One was called the Church of the Open Door. The other one was called the Church of the Closed Door. The Church of the Open Door was the great Philadelphian church that ran from about 1600 to about 1900. The church of the closed door starts in 1900, and we live in that period today called Laodicea. Laodicea means the rights of the people. And I showed you how that it was the greatest period of time in the Philadelphian church age when God said in Revelation chapter 3, I've set before you an open door, and no man is going to shut it. And that is the greatest missionary movement. That's the greatest soul-winning movement. That's a time when probably three-quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this old book, this King James 1611, was preached from one end of the earth to the other. But then in 1900, the door closed. And now we find in the book of Revelation where it talks about the fact, he says before, he says, I stand before you, uh, you know, and, uh, and if any man hear my voice and open up unto me, uh, you know, he'll, uh, he'll come and he'll, he'll dwell with him. Now it's a closed door. It's a closed door. And we find that uh, the door uh, for the, the, the door, the gate here is, is our church. It's where all the activities take place. It's where the center of your life should be. People come in and people leave. And everything here is laid out from what God wants us to do. He said it himself over there in the Gospels. He says, uh, he says uh, uh, you know, that we as Christians are like a city on a hill. And he says when a city on a hill, is, all the lights are on, who can miss it? 
How can you miss a city sitting on a hill? When we started our church, I talked about the fact that we took you through Nehemiah and Esther and showed you the nine gates around that city and how that that is a picture of the nine ministries that a church needs to have to grow. And, and the gates are the places where people come in. Some of our gates are the athletic ministry or the counseling ministry or, or, the, or the restart ministry or turnaround. Uh, there's a number of gates that people come in. And that's exactly what he's talking about. And he says, if you take a city and you put all the lights on in the city and you put it on a hill, everybody sees it. And the problem with Christians today that make the church uh, none effect is nobody's got the lights on. You can't tell it because it's dark inside because the light is the glory of God shining through you that people see. People aren't going to come to this church or any church just because you put a marquee out. Now, you may get a thing and have a great praise band and have a great big screen TV and have all the services up there. People come to get entertained. But you talk about coming to get preached to, coming to get what God has for you. You know what? People aren't going to do that today unless they see that there's something different in your life. Don't you know that the families are hurting today? Moms and dads are afraid today. Marriages are on the rocks today. And when they look and they see a light on a hill, and that light is something that God has done in your life, they're going to come. Problem is, nobody's got the lights on. Cry, wisdom crieth in the opening of the gate. Uh, the church is central to God's plan. It's your training ground. And when you start to proclaim the wisdom of God, that's where you have to start. And then God takes it from there. The third thing, he says, wisdom cried without in the street. Now, there, there would be the crying out of God's wisdom uh, to the outside world, at work, your neighborhood, uh, anybody uh, who, who will listen, your family, uh, you know, your friends, your coworkers. Sonia, you know, Sonia is the poster child for overkill, but I, but I love it, you know. Sonia had the thing for a going away thing last night, and she has to invite every neighbor within a 500-mile radius. And some of them showed up, and they were great families, people who were great people. But you see, wisdom crieth without. That's what you got to do. This is where you step up and step out and preach unto them Jesus. Her brother came to me Thursday night and uh, a little bit concerned because she had, uh, again, uh, and I, it's a great bad cop, good cop thing. You know, she had beat him senseless over the King James Bible and how the Bible he had was corrupt. And to the point where he got nervous about it that he came to the Bible study, pulled me aside and said, I have to ask you some things. But it was a great opportunity for me to take what she did and to smooth it out, but at the same time, show him, and he said, I'll be back next week, you see? Wisdom crieth without. I mean, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. This is where you step out and you tell them. I've never, there's multiples of you have done that. I mean, it's the, one of the greatest attributes of our church. And I've watched you. We've talked about it. And we, we, we've worked through it. And we've seen it, how that God will put you in somebody's life, like he did with you with, what's his face? The guy with the 14-inch biceps, but the, we won't go the rest of the distance on that one. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Kevin did. And there's so many of you, you know, they see the difference in your life, and you, you, the lights are on. And you get a chance. You get a chance to give them what God has given you. They don't always take it. But that's what you do. 
wisdom quiet without. See, it sets our pattern. It sets our pattern. It was this very concept that was started in the book of Acts, that even though in the midst of Roman persecution, I mean Christianity spread through Asia Minor and through Europe like hot melted butter on popcorn. I mean, they were everywhere. When you come up in the dark ages and the Roman Catholic Church is running the world and, and killing Christians and doing all that she's doing, there was more saved people because of men and women who did that concept right there. On the street corners, in the marketplaces, wherever they were, they were telling the story of Christ and winning people to Christ in an incredible way. Absolutely incredible. I was in Amsterdam one time, and Amsterdam's a great historical city because it has so many aspects that, uh, that you can actually trace in history. And they have a place there uh, called Dam Square, and it's the dam where they block the, uh, the North Sea, and it, much of it is, would be underwater, but they've done it up there. And there were, uh, the buildings were there, oh, and I, I love places like this. You could actually stand there and walk down the streets and see on the old buildings, and they're all the high, straight-up buildings, the dates they were made. And they go back to 1604, 1650. I mean, they've been around for 400 years. And I was down there in Dam Square, which is huge. It's about four or five times the size of our parking lot. And, and it, it's a huge situ place. And I was standing down there, and right over there uh, in one of the museums, uh, famous museums of great paintings, there was a painting of a guy standing on a corner, right at this corner, with a, with a shop that was a map shop. And it, it was a painting of him having a Bible talking with somebody. And evidently, the paint, it was like a 300-year-old painting. So evidently, the guy who painted it saw the actual event and went home and painted it. And I saw that thing, and boy, when I went out of there, you know what I did? I went over there, and I just stood on the exact same corner, and that exact same building was there, and it was a map shop as it was today. It looked exactly today like it did in that painting. And I just stood there for a moment and just thought, man, 350 years ago, some, some Dutchman stood here with a Bible and, and won some guy to Christ. And that was going on in Europe, all over Europe. It was incredible because they understood that wisdom cried out in the streets. Then the fourth thing he says here, it cry, wisdom crieth out in the chief place of the concourse. Now, this will be our government, the place where the laws and the rules are laid down. And you know as well as I do, our country is in a total chaos mess today. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's on life support system. It really is. And, uh, and yet uh, there was a time when in its greatness, it was based on its belief in a book that God gave them and its principles, the Word of God. You know, our founding fathers, and most people don't even know this, our founding fathers, no matter what you're told today, uh, they understood, and they, as I told you Thursday night, this country was built on the principles and the fundamentals of a King James 1611 authorized version as the Word of God. And our doctrine, of, our, our Declaration of Independence, what was drafted by Thomas Jefferson, in its final form, and no people don't even know this, in its final form, in fact, when he brought the first draft back, uh, the guys looked at it and they said, whoa, there's only one reference to God here. And we cannot accept this because from where we've come from and what we've been through, we all know that we wouldn't be where we're at without God. That's a fresh breath of air for a government, isn't it? And so they sent it back and Thomas Jefferson went back and he rewrote it and put in four concepts about God. And they are the four absolute fundamental 
concepts that every nation should be built on and every family should be built on and every life should be built on. And when you read that, nobody sees it today. Nobody understands it today. But the first thing he did is he made a reference to God as lawgiver. The second thing he made a reference to was God as creator. The third thing he made reference to was God as supreme judge. And the fourth reference of God in our Declaration of Independence is God is our protector and our sovereign. Four of the greatest concepts and principles that you could ever pick out of the Bible to put in a founding constitution or a Declaration of Independence for a country starting its new birth and starting out. They're the same four principles that will work in your personal life and work in your family. A little bit later on, we saw uh, when, the, when they began to form the states, by 1892, there was 44 states in our union. And they came to the point where uh, they said that, uh, uh, that nobody could hold office in those states. Nobody could hold office in those states unless they believed the Bible was the Word of God. We saw back in 1787 with Ben Franklin, who wasn't even a saved man. George Washington, who wasn't a saved man. He was a deist. And James Madison, I'm not sure what he was. But they put forth what was, is called the, the Northwest Ordinance in 1787. And the Northwest Ordinance said a lot of things and did a lot of things about all the new territories that wanted to become states. But one of the things it says is that no territory would be accepted as a state unless they taught the King James 1611 Bible in the public school system. Well, we've come a long way from that, haven't we? Let wisdom cry in the chief place of concourse. You see, this is where the laws are made. This is where the rules are made. Well, even today when you hear on the news that somebody was arrested for sodomy, it goes back to Genesis 19. We live in a world where our laws and our structures are based on what the Bible principles in the Bible said, even though nobody wants to admit it today, or they'll try to change the name whenever they can. The fifth place, with Christ without in the city. Now, this is the crying out of wisdom of God right down in our own city. Now, here's our homeless ministry. Here's our street ministry. Here's our 13th and Cherry with Q, Phil, and Cleon, and Joe. Here's our river team with Darren and Joe. Here's Restart. Here's Turnaround. Here's Will's team, Steve's team, Chris's team. Here's Zach's whole high school team. Here's, here's, here's uh, Joe and Christina down at the Ronald McDonald house, literally going down into the city. And, and going down there and taking and declaring and wisdom and crying to them and trying to get them uh, uh, to what God wants you to do. A while back, a family left the church, and uh, uh, one of the things they had said to somebody else was that our, 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 our city ministry was, was really a wasted endeavor, and it was really a waste of time. And that wasn't the reason they left, but that, that, was, that was their idea about the thing. Let me tell you something. Right now as we speak, there's five people that come to the church every Sunday morning that were saved and came out of that deal and sits in this church every Sunday morning and half of them are here today. Five of them. Five of them. A wasted endeavor? No. The only wasted endeavor was the 25 years I spent with that couple. That's all they learned about it. I'm telling you, wisdom quiet without. Wisdom quiet without. You take it out there and you, you go out and you, you, you give them what they need. I drive around getting water to people, making sure they get it. I see you guys sitting on the curb with a truck talking to them about the Lord. I watch you guys down at 13th and Cherry. You get to know the guys now. They get to know you. And you get to sit down and open up and talk with them about the Lord. That's, going, that's one of the areas that we're to do it in. 
in the city, in the street, in the place of concourse, in the gate. Now, I want you to see this, and I think this is incredible. Now, to me, this is probably the greatest aspect of all this today is that God's wisdom is available if you want it. It really is. It's here. I don't care if we're in the church of the closed door. I mean, he said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, talking about the day and age that we're living in, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open a door, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. It doesn't matter that churches around the world have refused God. In that verse, it shows you that they've thrown God out of their own church, of his own church. They got praise bands. They got music. They got all the things except the Bible. And he's not interested in praise band. He's not into big screens. He's into one thing. It's the preaching of this book. And he tells you right there, if you do it, if you open that door when I'm knocking on it, then I'll come in and sup. That's fellowship. Supper. We'll eat together. Come and dine. The master calls. Come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. What he's talking about. What he's talking about. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, another great verse. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst or water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. That's where we're at today. There's a famine. There's a famine. Not a food. Man, we all got more food than we need. It's not, it's not a food. Water, you can buy bottled water, 36 of them for $2.36. No, the, the famine today is for truth. The famine today is for that book. The famine today that is destroying and making this country lean and it's going to die is the fact that nobody's preaching the Word of God anymore. And the great thing about this here, the book's here. It's always been here. Problem is not the word of God is not here. The problem is not the truth is not here. If you read that verse, the problem is the hearing of the book. The book's here. The book's right here. It's just nobody wants to hear it. There's no demand for it today. The Bible and the wisdom of God, the truth of God is here. The problem is nobody wants to hear it. I grew up in a generation, as some of you older people did, that the great thing was tell it like it is, tell it like it is, tell it like it is. But when you told it like it was, they didn't want to hear it. Now, there's no demand today for the wisdom of God. Demand today is for booze, it's for sex, it's for drugs, it's for success, it's for status, it's for fame, it's for money, it's for education and jobs and property. But there's no demand for wisdom. And I'm telling you, it's here. That's one of the greatest things in here, that it's here. And you can have it if you want it. I think of the story of old Peter Appleman. I studied the Civil War one time. I've always been in the Civil War. And old Peter Appleman was a Confederate. And uh, one night, they were in a stalemate, and the Union lines trenches were about 200 yards away, and those Confederate lines were 200 yards the other way, 200 yards apart, all down in a little parapet, you know. And, 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 and Peter Appleman, he, uh, uh, he, he wanted to get at them Yankees. So he crawled out. I mean, he was a big guy. He was about six foot nine. His, his fist looked like two hams. And he, he, he crawled out and went down through no man's land and got over that thing. And, uh, and, and there was a sentry, a Union sentry that was on duty, and he was asleep. 
And old Peter Appleman picked him up and cracked him along the head and threw him over his shoulders and started back. And they started to see him and started to shoot at him. And Appleman's Confederate guys started to cover fire, shoot back, you know. And he drugged that guy behind the trees and under the rocks. And it just wore out and got over there, climbed over that thing and fell in that pit. And the commanding officer was out and all the troops were out. And he, he, he threw him down there and he says, there's out there, Yankee. There's a whole bunch of them over there. You all could have had one if you wanted one. But only one guy went to get him. Here's the word of God. You can all have it if you want it. The wisdom of God is here. You can have it if you want it. God, people don't want it. The world doesn't want it. Now, the next thing he says, look at verse 22. How long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fool, fools hate knowledge. Now, how long ye simple ones? Now, what follows here in verse 22? I don't know if you picked it up or not. Are the three types of people that you're going to encounter in your life. You're going to work with people. You're going to deal with people. These are the three kind of people you're going to find. And in ministry and dealing with them, you come across them all the time. I do. Three types of people and why they don't want God's wisdom, why they don't want to do what's right. Now, these are what you call, found in what you call a cumulative order. In other words, a progression of bad to worse. The first group's not bad, or not good. Second worst is bad, and the third group is really bad. And they are the simple ones, the scorners, and the fools. And you'll see uh, this in lives of unsaved people, but you'll also see it in lives of saved people. I, I told you, I think it was last week or maybe a week before last, there isn't anything an unsaved man can do that a saved person can't do except go to hell. And, the, and a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, they don't get it, and this causes a lot of uh, problems for people. But uh, sometime you go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, you'll find one of the greatest studies laid out anywhere in the Bible about not being in the flesh, getting out of the flesh and getting saved, but yet a saved person still, even though he's not in the flesh, walking after the flesh. Incredible study. It, it, it answers so many questions about why people say, well, how can a Christian do that if he's saved? Because he's not, he's not in the flesh anymore, but he's walking after the flesh. And those two verses, incredible. One of the greatest studies in the Bible. And it, 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 it basically shows you that, man, there's people who are saved who walk after the flesh and not after the Spirit. One of the most powerful teachings in all of the Bible. So you're going to find that Christians do these things or become like this, just like saved people, unsaved people do. Now look at verse 22. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? Now I got to tell you this, there's two kinds of simplicity in the Bible. Uh, you'll find over there in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 12, uh, or 1 and 2 I think it is, you're going to find that uh, there's a simplicity of God. In other words, God is very basic, very common. The Bible is an easy book to understand, you've just been going at it the wrong way. God is simple in His form of the way he deals with people. We like to make God a very complicated being, and he's really not. But that's the good simplicity. But there's a simplicity in life of people who just don't care. Here the simple one is somebody who just don't care about anything spiritual or maybe anything in life, nor do they care to find anything out. <laughs> they simply are careless and indifferent people who never investigate anything as to its moral value. I've met people who claim they're saved, and I don't argue with them. They claim they're saved, and they go through the whole of their life, and it doesn't matter what it is, right or wrong, they never get in the middle and never take a stand for anything that's right or anything that's wrong. They just try to ride the middle of the fence. 
And, and that's almost impossible to do. They'll never want to get involved. Uh, they never can or can, will take a stand for anything in life, much less anything for God. Some go to church. Some go to church every week. Some go to, don't go at all. I mean, their, their main characteristic in life is the fact that most of them never really complete anything they start. They start doing something, they'll go for a while, and then they'll bail out and never finish it off. Their whole life is that way. I've had guys tell me, Bob, my life's a mess. I've never finished one thing in my life in all the years that I've lived. I've I got the best intentions. I start doing it, but I just never finish it. That's a characteristic of somebody that he's talking about here, ye simple ones. They're lazy. They're indifferent, or they can be lazy, I mean, I've seen them work hard eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, 12 hours. That's not what I'm talking about. They're lazy when it comes to spiritual things. They're lazy when it comes to the things of God. They're indifferent. They have no plan. They have no goal. They have no structure in their life when it comes to the things of God. And, uh, and in life, too, many times. And, you know, you see it all the time. They, you really see, I see God's people like this all the time. No real commitment to anything. Uh, you know, the majority of God's people in most of the churches today, they'll go to church. Hey, I've known people that have been in churches for 30 years, and they don't know any more about the Bible today than they did when they walked in that place. Why is that? I mean, how can you go someplace for 20 years, 30 years, and never, <laughs> and not understand any more than when you went in? That every time there's a tragedy, every time there's a problem, every time there's this, every time there's that, you have to go back to square one. You have no ability to get in and really understand how to use the Bible in your life. That's what he gave it to you for. Everything in life takes precedent over the things of God in people who are simple. When the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, forsake not the assembling yourself together as the manner of some is, they missed that verse. I was driving back. Uh, someplace, and I saw a marquee on a sign uh, of a church, and I thought it was really neat. Probably if some of you saw it, it was on uh, um, 291 or Norland Road. I can't remember where it was, but it says, the church is God's model. And then underneath of it, some assembly required. <laughs> the assembly, you being there. And it was, you know, that's, that's so true. I, I've seen people, you know, have some... Uh, something at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and they got to stay home from church on Sunday morning to get ready for it. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I mean, uh, they have no ability to prioritize. They have no ability. Well, I'll do this tonight so I can be at church tomorrow. Oh, no, I got something at 4 o'clock. I got something at 1 o'clock. Oh, we can't go to church. What are you going to do? Well, I, we, we got something today we got to do. But that's just the way they are, you see. They take every opportunity to put whatever is more important in their life over the things of God. And in ministry, you can't count on them for anything. Uh, there are certain people, when, they come, when I say I need your help, and somebody says, I'll be there, I never say it, wouldn't tell you who it was because it wouldn't embarrass anybody, but I know where the simple ones are, and they'll come up and say, I'm going to do this. You know what I'll do? I'll have somebody else backing them up because I know they won't make it. I'll get a phone call about an hour before. I'll get a phone call maybe the day before. I can't be there. My grandfather died again. They are willingly ignorant of any kind of consistent lifestyle. And usually their families show it. And they don't give two hoots in the weather uh, if they ever find any truth in life or not. They just do what please. These are the, these are the simple ones of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. Then the next group, he says in verse 22, the scorners. And they're not just scorners. They're people who love to be scorners. And brother, you see this all the time in Christianity. 
And, uh, you know, people who delight in negativity, as I said a couple of weeks ago, get the T-shirt, no negative people allowed, wear it. They live to tear down anybody or anything that tries to do right. They're not just scorners, by de uh, they delight in being a scorner. And, and here's the enticement we talked about last week, you know. Uh, Christians like this who will scorn and slander others so you'll go be with them and give them the credibility that they so desperately desire. These types of Christians will, will, will take a talk about how much they love God and how much God means to them, and yet, on the other hand, they'll, 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 they'll lie through their teeth to you. In the unsaved world, they'll be the anti-God crowd. They'll make fun of purity. They'll make fun of churches. They'll make fun of all the things in the Bible and believe in the Bible. They'll talk about philosophy and higher criticism and higher education. They'll follow the anti-God philosophy or the anti-biblical philosophy. They would be the modern liberals today that we talk so much about. In the Christian world, they're really the shamed. They're just saved, I guess. I guess they're saved. I don't know. They say they are. They go to churches. They have a Bible. They sing in the choir. They hold services. They talk about God, and, 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 but just never follow the biblical principles where it goes against what they really want to do. They love to slander. They love to scorn people, anybody that can make themselves look better uh, and like they're the real deal. Now, these are the scorners of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. People ask me all the time, how can a Christian do that? Let me tell you something. The greatest in my life, I've been alive 63 years old. The greatest enemy I ever met to the Bible, the greatest enemy I ever met in my life against that Bible was a saved man. The greatest enemy I ever met in my life against that book not only was a saved man, but he was a pastor and priest every Sunday morning. And I, all my life, I, I was associated, well, my, well, 20 years of my life, anyhow, I was associated with this guy. And it was a thing where, uh, you know, uh, he, would, he, would, he, he, he was a decent preacher, but he hated that book. He would make fun of the King James Bible. He would belittle any of these smaller preachers that believed it. He would call them hillbillies and hicks. He would make fun of them. He would write them disparaging letters, and, and he was great, a master at writing. And he would destroy them and make fun of them and ridicule them. He was a saved man, pastor of church. And yet in my mind, in my experience in life, <clears throat> greatest enemy I ever met to that book right there. Greatest enemy I ever met. So it can happen. It can happen. It can happen. Then the third thing, you have the fools, and fools, they hate knowledge. Now, even though the Bible lists these three things as separate, you ought to be smart enough to know now that uh, you'll find all three of these characteristics in all these kinds of people. They'll all, I mean, it won't just be one, two, three. They'll mix back and forth. You'll find all these characteristics. But a fool is clearly defined for us. We, we talked about it in, in Proverbs when I gave you the eight things that Proverbs defines as a fool. Despises wisdom, mocks sin, meddles in other people's affairs, slanders, dog going back to his own vomit, eyes to the ends of the earth, resist punishment for correction, trust in his own heart. We talked about it. Now, where these two uh, can believe in God, even uh, though saved and unsaved, the unsaved fool professes that there is no God. And yet, you bet it, brother, Christians fall into the foolish category just like the unsaved people do. They can get to the place in their life where you can't even tell if they're saved. Brother, I've seen it all my years in ministry. All my years. I've seen people that they, you, you, you thought they were saved. They would say they were saved. But I'm telling you, 
you don't see one characteristic in their life that proves that they are. And it bothers you. It bothers you. Now look at something else here. Look at verse 23. He says, turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known all my words unto you. Now here's something else that this uh, passage is loaded. Now look at verse 23. You know what you got here? You got three of the greatest outstanding New Testament doctrines found in that verse. Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you about the instruction of the father, the law of the mother, how does the Old Testament support the New Testament? Here's a classic example of that. Here's an Old Testament verse that basically supports the New Testament teachings about three things. The first one here is the doctrine of repentance. Look what he says. Turn you at my reproof. Now, you know my stand on this, and, and I, it's my own personal stand. It's my own personal conviction. I don't preach it as a doctrine. I, I preach it as what I, I, I see in life and where I know the world is and where the Bible is and where people are at with it. But you know I've said it many, many times that I don't think that 99% of God's people, people who say they're saved, are really saved. I say that based on the lifestyle that they live. Now, you live in a world and grew up in a world, and I feel sorry for you about it. I do. I really do. I wish I could change it, but I can't. The only thing I can do is preach you the truth on a Sunday morning. I can't go back and re reroute your life, but uh, your life coming up was different than mine. And I appreciate what I have, and I wish you could have had it. Most of you never had a chance to see the real thing. Most of you never had a chance to see a real change uh, that affects somebody when they get saved. Most of you have never seen a real revival. Most of you have never seen what real Christianity is. Most of you, all you see is this fluffy stuff that you see on TV or you go to churches where it's all about music and it's all about this. I've even had people say, you know what, I don't like that church because they preach the Bible. I like the music of this church. If you go to church because of the music, you're going for the wrong reason. You got to go to the church because of the Word of God that changes your life. Nobody's life got changed by music. It's the book that changes your life. But that's where people are at today. And you know my take on it. I've, I've said it many, many times. I'm not embarrassed to say it. I think that most of the people that claim they're saved are really saved. I think we live in a world of easy Christianity where that uh, nobody, when they get saved, uh, I mean, there's churches. I've seen churches where uh, the pastors will, when when he gives an invitation. You know what he does? He just has everybody bow their heads, tells them the nice little gospel story and says, okay, the best way you know how, ask Christ if you, if you ever got, if you, to come into your heart and save you. And then he says, if you did that, raise your hand. And he says, wow, we had 50 people saved. That is the stupidest thing you could ever do in the world we live in. You know how confused people are about things? You know there's some, if you're going to get saved, there's some exact things you got to know. You realize if you're going to trust Christ as your personal Savior, as a pastor, that is probably the most crucial decision in your life. And I'm going to let you make that by yourself without me showing you what the Bible says. I'm going to take for granted you understand all the things that you need to do. While you may have come out of a charismatic church, you may come out of this church, you may come out of this church. I've saw people that raised their hand and want to get saved and thought that baptism saved them. I've seen people that had a bad marriage and said, I'm going to get saved because I want God to fix my marriage. You realize if you get saved because you want God to fix your marriage, you're going to die and go to hell? You don't get saved so God will fix your marriage. You get saved because you're a sinner and going to go to hell, and then God may fix your marriage. Right. You're going to leave that to chance? You're going to let somebody who's already in turmoil in life and already struggling decide those things and just take for granted? Will you understand all that? What's the matter with you? That's why here when you get saved, there's no music to entice you. We don't sing how many times I've been in that. Well, all right, we've now sang 900 verses of Just As I Am. Let's change the song. Maybe that'll work for you. 
I'll tell you something. You get saved here, it's very simple. You stand up if you want to get saved. Somebody will take you in the back and open up a Bible and show you how to get saved. Make sure you know what you're doing. Make sure you understand. You know why? Because the first thing he says here is, turn ye in my reproof. Repentance. Amen. Repentance. You know why I think most people aren't saved to claim they are? Because there's no repentance in their life. If you're going to turn from something or turn to something, you've got to turn from something. And preachers get up today and they talk about, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. They never say what you've got to leave. Amen. And if you don't understand repentance and you come to get saved and you somebody comes down there and says, well, I just want God to save me for this and for that, you have to understand that you're turning from something. You have to realize that to turn to God, you've got to leave something. And it may be different than everybody's life, but in a nice big generic sense, it's the world. And you take somebody who gets down and gets saved, and it happens. I know human nature. They come down, they get down there on their knees someplace or somebody there, and they're all in their mind. They're not, they're thinking, well, you know what? I can still do this or I can still do that. I've had people say, well, I'm not ready to get saved because uh, I don't want to give this up. I understand that. Because when you truly get saved, you have to turn. You have to repent. You have to turn from your lifestyle to a new lifestyle. And I don't understand it today where God's people who are supposed to be new creatures in Christ Jesus come down, get saved from an old lifestyle, get up, and then just go do the same lifestyle. Amen. Isn't there something wrong with that? Yes, I'm going to start amen myself if I don't get more than him helping me here. Amen. Good. What's wrong with people today? <laughs> Psalm 51 is the great model for real salvation. When David went his famous prayer after his great sin. And when he comes down through that prayer, you find the five things that must be in a person's life for them to be saved. And I don't see it today. First thing he says is a broken spirit. Next thing he says is a broken and contrite heart. The next thing he says is a humbleness to God. The next thing he says is the right spirit. And the last thing he says is a restitution process, that you're well ever to do whatever you got to do. I don't see it. I see people getting saved, getting up, go out and doing the same things they did before they did, got saved. That's not repentance. There are five attributes to repentance. And he says, Turn you at my reproof. No turning? Well, you can figure it out. You're smart people. Now, the second great New Testament doctrine here. I will pour out my spirit unto you. And the next thing I want to talk to you about is the true conversion of the believer. Conversion precedes the giving of the Holy Spirit of God in your life when you got saved. A true conversion is based on repentance and that has to happen before the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit of God comes into your life. It's a conversion. We all know what a converter box is. You go there and you want to run, a, you want to run an AC off of your 12-volt battery in your car and a cigarette lighter. You got to get a little box. You plug it in here. The 12-volt comes in and it changes it around and then you put your TV in and it runs on AC here. That's converter. That's a converter box. And when you get saved, you come in as a sinner, you get spun around a little bit, and you get converted, and you go out as a child of God. There has to be a conversion. Paul, uh, Peter told Israel that in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He said, here it comes, repent ye therefore, that's first, and be converted, that your sin may be blotted out. There's no blotting out of our sins until one, repentance, and two, a true conversion. Then the third great New Testament doctrine here 
He says, I will make my words known unto you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. You see, you can't get the Bible without the Holy Spirit of God opening up your understanding. You can be the smartest mind in the world, most exhilarating mind, the sharpest mind on the planet, and you'll be as dumb as a stump when it comes to that Bible because it's not your, it's not your aptitude that develops your altitude with God. It's your attitude. It's you coming to the place where you realize that you ain't going to learn a thing out of that book unless God gives it to you. One of the greatest verses, and I've given it to you many, many times, one of the greatest verses that God ever gave me years ago that I, I hold responsible for uh, God teaching me the Bible, whatever he taught me, was Luke 24, 45, where he simply says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. If the Holy Spirit of God doesn't open up your heart and open up your mind and teach you based on a true conversion, based on repentance, and you get in the Holy Spirit of God, you ain't going anywhere. That's been gone today. That's gone today. Now you go to most churches, they'll give you a little typed out Sunday school lesson. It's all prepaid for you. It's all prefabbed. Everything is there. Everything is constricted. Everything's ready to go. Everything's laid out. Everything's programmed. Everything's by a structure. And you got to run on a timetable. You got to do this for 15 minutes, do this for 10 minutes. You got to do this for 12 minutes. And then when you got left over, you get an 18 minute message. It's all worked out. There's no room for the Holy Spirit of God to come down and do anything. And in your personal life, it comes to that process that if you're going to ever learn the Bible, it's not going to be based on how much you come to church. Well, I got people to come to church every Sunday. I got people to come to Thursday night Bible study, and they still don't learn the Bible. You know why? Because it isn't based on whether you come here and get it. It's based on the Holy Spirit of God and your relationship with Him in your life. John chapter 16, probably the greatest defining chapter in the Bible in the Holy Spirit of God in you. And I've showed you before that there's seven things the Holy Spirit of God does for you. And one of them, number four, is He'll lead and guide you into all truth. And until that takes place in your life, nothing's going to change. So you see how loaded this passage is? Now by now, even, even in our short time as we've been coming through this, you can see how this first chapter is so remarkable. I mean, 15 times he says, my son, and he gives us some kind of instruction. This, this first seven chapters is a gold mine of instruction for us as God's son. Each week we're going to take and we're going to build on the last teaching and we're going to see in time a complete picture begin to emerge. By the time we get to chapter 8, you're going to see a complete understanding of how this thing completely lays itself out. A complete understanding of God's wisdom and what it takes to get it and then how, what it will do for you. You know, most people don't know this. In the Bible, there's two great charges given by the father to their sons. And I think they're probably two of the greatest places in the Bible. I think it's a great, these two charges are a model for your own personal life as a believer. I think as a father, they're a great model for your family and your children. And I think for a pastor, they're a great model for a church. We have the one that we're looking at now in uh, Proverbs, and uh, Proverbs chapter 1 through 7 is him charging his son, giving him these things. Solomon's taken all the wisdom, all the things that he's learned, all the things that God's allowed him to experience, and boy, there was nobody on earth that experienced it more than he did. He experienced everything in his life, good and bad, and then he writes a book about it in Ecclesiastes, but in this book here, he's giving out wisdom to his son. In the first seven chapters, he charges his son to get wisdom. The second great charge in the Bible is found over there uh, in, 
uh, second, uh, First Chronicles chapter 28 and 29. And it's David's charge to his son Solomon. It had to make some kind of impact on his life. When David writes his charge to Solomon, chapter 28 and 29, I read that, man. I mean, ah, it's straight from God to me. And I always looked at this thing as is that uh, that one God, uh, David gave to his son before he ever built the temple. And I always look at this in and, and, and Proverbs as after he built the temple. I always look at this as these are the things that every new Christian needs to know before he starts building the temple. They're the things that I go back to in my own life, what David said to his son Solomon. I mean, it's some of the greatest stuff you ever find in your life. But it was all before he built the temple. Solomon hadn't built it yet. David wasn't allowed to build it. So he gives that charge to his son, and Solomon takes that charge, and then he builds the temple. I always looked at that, that that's a place where a Christian starts. Seeing David as a type of God, giving him, before you start to build that temple, what you need to do. And then you have the second charge, which is Solomon. Solomon wrote that after he built the temple. Once you start in the process, Solomon picks up where David left off, and the second charge goes over the first charge. Oh, it's incredible stuff. As I said, for me as an individual, it's my model for life. It's looking at those two charges, and there are two men that the one was the wisest man that ever lived. The other one had a heart for God more than any man in the Bible. You don't get any better than that. The heart of God and the wisdom of God, two charges. And when you put those things together, it gives you everything that you need as, a, as an individual. But then as a father, for your family, for your children, I, I, I look at Solomon sitting down and David sitting down with Solomon and Solomon sitting down with his son, laying these things out. And what a model for us, for you young families, with your young children, to sit down and to read those two charges, get out of those two charges, and then develop your own charge that you sit down and reinforce in your family, reinforce with your children. That's what it's all about. And yet I, I, I look at it for, for me as a pastor because we're a family. And I, I look at it as my responsibility as a pastor is to know these things. It's not enough for me just to get a big screen TV or get colored lights or get one of those disco balls and put up in a church so you get sparkly when the lights go out. It's more than that. My job is to understand you and where you're struggling with. My job is to know these things. My job is to give you the charges that, that Solomon gave to his son and David gave to Solomon. And as a pastor, it's my responsibility to give those charges to you, to keep them before you, to lay them out for you, to give you the best chance with your own individual relationship with God, to give you the best chance with your family, and then the best chance that our church has to accomplish everything that God wants us to have. Because the success of you as an individual and the success of your family and the success of this church is in those two charges right there. And right now we're looking at Solomon's. Fifteen times, fifteen times he says to his boys, son, this is what you want to do. Son, this is what you don't want to do. And if you're a father and you're a mother and you're not sitting down with your young sons and you're not daughters and you're not doing that, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. Because that's what your responsibility is. It's what my responsibility is to the church. And it's what your individual responsibility is too. But you see how it works? You do it with God first. Then you take what God gives you. You do it with your family. And then you take what God gave you as an individual. And you took it to your family. Then you bring it to church. And you do it here. That's how it's supposed to work. Well, we'll hold up there. Next week we'll get into... 
another section of it, and uh, it's a, it'll be a quite an interesting session. Well, look, here we got. We're going to set up our, 